Well, today we're looking at the church of Pergamos. And the church of Pergamos is found in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. And it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of you a hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamus is about 50 miles uh, north of Smyrna, where we looked last week. Um, Today, Smyrna is called Ishmir, and Pergamus is called Bergama today in the area, what we call Asia Minor, once was called Asia, now we call Asia Minor, in the country of Turkey today. It's about 50 miles from Ishmir, and it's about 16 miles from the ocean inland. And uh, it was a great city of its day, a powerful city, a political city, and um, it had uh, all the modern conveniences uh, of the day. And we see the ancient map and how things looked at that time. And there we see the seven churches that we're going to be looking at. Ephesus, Smyrna. You can see the mel route that goes around to Pergamon, down to Thyatira, sort of in the shape of a horseshoe, as the mailman would deliver the mail. Of course, this mail is from the Lord to the seven churches. And we learn, uh, as we look at Pergamus, that it had a, a grand gymnasium that's been excavated there. It had probably the, the greatest library of its day. It had 200,000 parchments, which is different from the Egyptian papyruses. And it's believed here that when things broke down between Egypt and Asia Minor for a season, that they actually developed the parchment, which later developed into paper, what we use today. And uh, so it's here in Pergamos that the parchment, they believe, was invented. And then they had a a temple, of course, to the emperor uh, Trajan, and they had the emperor worship. And here is a a theater uh, named after Emperor Trajan, And then the Acropolis. Out of Pergamos was this large hill, almost a mountain. And it was the whole thing is called the Acropolis. And on it are many, many temples that were placed upon them. Grand buildings to the various gods. And here, as you climb up this huge mountain, uh, you can see the walkway as they begin to the entrance into the Acropolis. Probably one of the most distinct temples in Pergamos was the temple of Zeus. And if you know 
Greek mythology, Zeus was the chief of all the gods. And he had the grandest temple there. And there at the bottom, there was a great altar, stood 40 feet high, 100 feet by 100 feet wide to Zeus. And there's a number of other temples as well, of Athena, of Dionysus, and the temple, again, of Trajan, the emperor. Quite a bit of that left. And then there's uh, a skellium of the god uh, Skellius, um, who you'll see it was with the serpent, the serpent god. Some believe we get our medical symbol today of the serpent wrapped around the pole from this uh, Greek god. And uh, the skellium or the, the, the temple, uh, the ske- Skellius, was, to, uh, was the goddess of healing. And they had a temple there. Also interesting enough, they had another temple. Uh, here's the small theater. And then they had a temple to Serapis, the, called the Serapim. Uh, and this was the temple of the Egyptian god of healing, who also happened to be the god of the underworld, which is rather interesting. And you probably have seen pictures of this because he's sort of the depiction of the devil. Uh, the god of Serpius, it sounds like what we have a word serpent from, but he was a god who had the horns, a little red uh, devil-looking creature. Interesting enough, he was a god of healing. And there's quite a bit of the temple of Serpus left. And what they did is they would tell the sick to come and to sleep all night in the temple, all the lights were out, and as they laid in the pitch darkness and laid upon the floor, the priests would turn loose thousands of snakes. And they told the people that if the snake curled up next to you or crawled over you, that you would be healed. And there was holes within the building where the priest would be speaking and it would echo through the temple, you're being healed, you're feeling better. You know, your body is now uh, becoming healed. And they would speak these positive words all night to them while they laid on the floor. I guess a positive confession there. And uh, yet of its day, it was uh, a very powerful religion. And one last interesting thing is they have a white stone there. And on this are names that are unknown to this day. Most believe that it's... uh, a white stone representing secret names that they had these various types, sororities, they're called mystery religions, and they would have a name there inside the temple, their name that everybody would know them by, but only if you were a part of that group would you understand the name. So, you know, he's uh, the Grand Poobah Bubba Rama, you know, and, and uh, nobody knows that, and the secret handshake and all, except to the people who are, are a part of that. And yet they put this in memory, but nobody would understand what this white stone or the things mean unless you were a part of that religion. And that was a way of honoring the elite of that mystery religion, which is rather interesting because as we finish up in Pergamon, God says, I have a white stone, and those who overcome, they have a name that uh, only they know. But my white stone is a whole lot more important than the white stone in Pergamos. And so in verse 12 there, he says, to the angel or the messenger, to the church in Pergamos. So to the person in charge there who's delivering the message to the church, you need to know these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So again, in chapter one, we saw a description of Jesus. 
And he has various aspects of the features of this look, this heavenly look of Jesus. And one by one, taking a portion of that picture of Jesus and applying it to the seven churches. And this is the aspect this church needs to focus in on. And in this particular case, the church of Pergamos needs to focus in upon the sword of the Lord. We know in chapter 1 and also later on here that it's the sword in that's coming from his mouth. So the first thing you would think of, sword, mouth, the Bible makes it clear that the word of God is the sword, the sword of the spirit. It says in Ephesians 6, which is the word of God. But it's a two-edged sword. And as we read on here in the church of Pergamos, we're going to discover why it's coming from his mouth and why it has two edges. The one edge is the word of God, which is there to cut the bondages and to set men free. If people will listen to the word of God and obey it, God's word can come and cut away all the things that bind you. But on the other hand, God's going to come and speak the same word that would free men. It's going to be, it can be the same word that will condemn men who didn't repent, who didn't receive the Lord. The other edge of the sword that's going to come from his mouth is the word of judgment that's going to come upon people that will not receive the gift of God, his son, Jesus Christ, and the freedom from sin, and the freedom from a life of sin. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The sword of God's mouth is incredibly precise, sharper and more precise than the scalpel in the hands of a doctor. And it'll come and pierce right through the very thoughts and intents. We often don't know our motives, but God does. And God's word will shine a light upon your heart. God's word can cut through all of the fog and all of the muck and get right to the core of the issue to realize who you are and who he is and how you need to line your life up in obedience to him. And in verse 13, he says, I know your works and where you dwell. Again, to each of the church, he says, I know you. You have a presentation to others that that you want them to believe about you. You have another thing you believe about yourself. But I know you. I cut right through the muck and I'm looking at the true you. I know you. And I know where you dwell. We know God knows everything about us right down to the numbers of the hairs on our head. But he's saying here, I know what you're going through. In particular, you guys dwell where Satan's throne is. Wow, that's heavy. Now, whether he was saying this because that's where the temple of Zeus was and saying, you know, the head of all the Greek gods, uh, the satanic uh, doctrine that's being taught from there is coming from that place. And so people come from around the world to visit the temple of Zeus and you're sort of right in the middle of idolatry. Or maybe literally it was indeed where Satan's headquarters was at that time. You know, all we can see is the physical realm. We can't really see what's going on in the spiritual realm. We have little pictures which are rather interesting. We have the picture in Daniel chapter 10 when Gabriel comes and he says, okay, um, here it is, Daniel. Here's the message. I got to hurry and go back because Michael came and and cut me loose. There's this radical battle going on over the princes of Persia and I got to go back. So uh, 30 days ago, I tried to get here. I couldn't. I couldn't break through the forces, the demonic forces of Persia I was fighting through. But I finally got through. I'm here. I got to go back. Here's the message. 
It's like, whoa, there's a real battle going on up there, and we didn't even know about it. And so it could be that in the spiritual realm, there is a physical realm, and, and there is an actual temple of Satan, a headquarters of Satan, and at that time, it was over Pergamum. And he's saying, you are right in the middle, you're in the epicenter of the thickness, demonic forces on the planet. And even though you're under this incredible oppression, even though you're in this black cloud of, of, of a sense of the atmosphere of constant of, of Satan's presence, nevertheless, you hold fast my name. Radical. Even though you're under this constant demonic pressure and oppression, you are standing firm. I'll tell you one place where Satan dwells, and that's on the college campuses, not only in our nation, but throughout the world. It seems that Satan has had a pretty good success rate on getting the most liberal, crazy minds sometimes as professors in some of these colleges. And if you're a professor, please forgive me. I'm not talking about you. But uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a tough place for kids to follow God. There's the peer pressure to drink. And of course, today, you want to be a cool person on college campus, be a bisexual person. There's a lot of pressure uh, there to, to party, to get drunk, to have sex. And then on top of that, you have this incredible liberal thought, often incredibly inaccurate spewing as if they were these scientific facts, which is a bunch of garbage. But yet, because they're a professor, they can't be questioned. And a lot of pressure to change your morals, to change the truth of standing on God's word. And there's a lot of college kids who stand strong on the campuses today. And I say, may the Lord bless you and be a light and a salt there. And even though you've got pressure on every side, you're holding fast the Lord's name, and your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Continue to stand firm. And also, he said, you did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, who had killed among you, where Satan dwells. Often when the pastor of the church or a key figure is martyred for being a Christian, all of a sudden, all these people that used to be Christians, I'm not a Christian anymore because I don't want to be killed too. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy for when he was coming to stand before the emperor, uh, we know it as Emperor Nero there in Rome. He says, everybody forsook me. May God not hold it against them. But the Lord didn't forsake me. He stood with me. We see when Jesus was arrested, he says, as sheep uh, w- scatter from the shepherd, when the sh- shepherds slattered, that, that they all fled from Jesus. And he was alone. And, and not this church. They got braver. They were there at the court proceedings. They stood strong and they proclaimed they were Christians. Even though their leader Antipas was martyred, they said, I'm a Christian like him. If you're going to kill him, kill me too. They were brave. They didn't scatter. They stood strong in the midst of a very intense time of persecution, which is not normal. And he says, man, even during that time, you did not back down. Antipas. Interesting. What's that sound like to you? Anti, against, right? His name actually means against everything. <laughs> That's what his name means. You, you've seen some kids that are born that way, you know? They see everything in black and white. There's no gray area, you know? 
their way, they see it and they know it and all the, you know, they're not going to stand for any injustice by their brother or sister or mom or dad or anybody else. You know, this is the truth. And Antipas was that kind of guy. He was, knew the truth and he was going to stand on it. And he wasn't going to back down. People often say that of Christians. Man, you guys are against everything. You know what? We are against everything that is not the truth. You're absolutely right. And we're not talking about generally true. We're talking about specifically, exactly true. And I am against everything that is not exactly true. And let me tell you something. Every person on the planet lives that way. If you didn't live that way, every single day you would be dead. You're on the freeway. Some guy starts to even swerve towards the edge of his white line there on the road. What do you do? You honk, say, hey, buddy, you didn't cross the line, but you're too close for my comfort. Get back over there. Just be tolerant. Live and let live. It's all good, you know? You're not feeling that way. If you had to get a brain surgery, you don't want a surgeon going, hey, you know, I don't know what's going on. We'll just open up and take a look. See, we'll figure it out once we're in there. You don't want a brain surgeon like that. You you don't want a, a pilot who says, I'm not sure how to get there, but once we get this baby up in the air, we'll figure it out. You want an incredibly precise captain of that airplane who knows, even though there's thousands of gallons of gas, he knows to the very gallon how much is on there. And if the mechanic's been working on the engine, you don't want the captain to come over to the mechanic going, well, how did it go? Well, you know, I started up, it sounds pretty good, but I got about 10 extra parts. I'm not sure what these screws and this little spring here goes to and but, you know, I'll throw it in the bucket with the extra parts and, you know, give it a try, you know. When you get back from Europe, you know, we'll, we'll see how it worked. Do you want a mechanic like that? No way. You, the guy says, you know what, I put it all together and I have this one little tiny sixteenth of an inch screw. I know it goes somewhere. I'm taking this whole thing back apart and, and figure out where it goes. That's the kind of mechanic you insist upon, is it not? Okay, when you look at it, you live precise. When you go to the grocery store, you know, and she is supposed to give you $5.18 and she gives you $5.13, you don't say, uh, no big deal. You're going, hey, you know. And by the way, that, that thing is 79 cents. It's on sale. It's usually 81 cents. Give me my two cents on that. That's the way you are. That's the way we live. We, we live in precise fashion. That's why you're healthy. You didn't just slap your clothes on. You put your clothes on in a very precise fashion. You did your hair in a very precise... We live that way. God's made us to live that way. In the same way, the truth is the truth, and anything that's not the truth is a lie, is an error. And right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And we are against, you know, Satan, he, he, he doesn't care which wrong road you follow, as long as you follow a wrong road. You say, well, the Buddhists, they accept the Hindus, and the Hindus accept, the, you know, why can't we just, you know, like Gandhi say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Muslim, I'm a, you know, let's just embrace them all. Yeah, of course Satan's going to do that, because we know that all other religions are behind the scenes, demonically inspired by Satan. So he has a thousand different wrong ways for you to go. And of course, all the wrong ways agree. (laughs) And they don't care which wrong, Satan doesn't care which wrong way you choose. Just choose one of them. Don't choose Christ. 
Don't choose the right way. And Antipas was one who was against everything that wasn't of the truth. And I love this. It calls him a faithful martyr. That word martyr in the Greek is the same word witness. But through transition of time, it came to not only be used as one who gives a witness, but also one who dies for his witness. Now, what's interesting about that is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, one of the descriptions of Jesus is that Jesus is the faithful witness. It's the same word, same title given to Antipas. Isn't that precious? Antipas gets the same title as Jesus Christ. Can it get better than that? Every time I read through the gospel and I get to that part where the Father's speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It always gets me. How precious would it be if the Father said, you are my precious Son in whom I'm well pleased. Giving you the same sentence to apply into your life as to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Why I'm in the world, I am the light. But I'm going to leave and you will then be the light of the world. Wouldn't it be awesome if the Father said, you are the light of the world, just as my son was the light of the world. There can be no greater compliment than to be given the same title as Jesus Christ himself. And in this case, just like Jesus was a faithful witness to his death, so Antipas was as well. Even though it was an incredible, difficult time, and where did he die as a faithful witness? Where Satan dwells. But, he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you. I find that interesting. Because he says, man, you guys got it tough. I know how tough you have it. I realize you live in an incredibly demonic, satanic area of the world. And the oppression is like no other place. And because of that, the things you're doing wrong, forget about it. We won't even bring it up. I mean, that's what I would have thought. But the Lord said, even though you have it incredibly hard, there is no curve in Christianity. Only a straight road. And so even though there's other people that have it much easier than you, and even though you have it so difficult, there is no compromise still. I cannot grade you on a curve because you have it tough. The fact of the matter is, is you still have to live an uncompromising, holy, righteous life before me. And even though it's, an, it's more difficult for you where you live, I still expect it. What's that one saying? You know, we all have a cross to bear. Each of these churches have a, a, a difficulty that not other churches have. But nevertheless, the Lord says, I have something against you. Even though you've done wonderfully, you got an A plus in certain areas of your life. It does not make up for the other areas of your life. Even though you're doing stuff so right in certain areas, it cannot cover up the things that aren't right. All of them across the board have to be made right before me. In particular, number one, he says, you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now you have to know a passage of scriptures found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. 
And that's your homework if you don't know it. Numbers chapters 22 to 25. And it tells us about the story of Balaam. This is way back when the children of Israel have just left Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land. And as they're getting very close, they're coming to the land of Moab. Moab is just on the east side of the Dead Sea, bumping into the promised land. It's in the country of Jordan today. And Balak, who is the king of Moab, goes to Balaam, who was a prophet. He wasn't a Jew, but he was a prophet of God, which is rather interesting. And he says, I want you to curse the people down in this valley who are traveling through, because there's too many of them. I'm afraid uh, that they're my neighbors, that they may overwhelm us. And Balaam said, let me go ask the Lord if I can do that. And he goes to the Lord, and God said, absolutely not. Those are my people. And he goes to Balak saying, sorry, I can't do it. He goes, you don't understand how rich I was talking about making you if you will curse them. You sure you won't reconsider, Balaam? Balaam says, well, let me go ask God again. Hey, God, you know, we're talking about I'd be made rich by Balak. It's not. I'm really going to be made rich. Is there any way, just a little kind of curse I can throw on him to get all this money? And the Lord says, no way. Balak sends even greater dignitaries with even a greater amount of money. And finally, the Lord says to Balaam, Balaam, go. Go. But don't say anything other than I tell you what to say. And so Balaam gets on his donkey and off he is heading to a pinnacle, a peak where he can overlook and see the majority of the people, the children of Israel down in the valley. And all of a sudden, his donkey swerves and goes out in the middle of this field and he can't get it back on the road and he's fighting with this thing. He finally gets it back on track and again the donkey swerves and crushes his leg up against a wall and starts dragging his leg along this hard wall, ripping it up. And, and finally the donkey just sits down and won't get up and Balaam has had it. He starts beating this donkey, man. And God opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey says, Hey, haven't I been a good donkey to you all these years? And is it been my nature to go off in the road or to bump you up against the wall or sit down and not go forward like this? And then God opened Balaam's eyes. And there in front of him and the donkey was this angel with a sword ready to kill Balaam. The The donkey saved Balaam's life. And Balaam said, oh, you didn't want me to go. (laughs) Okay, now I got it. I'll I'll leave and I'll go back. And and God says, you know what? Go for it. But do not say anything other than I told you. And he went and as he looked at the people, he blessed them and he blessed them. And boy, Balak got so mad at Balaam. And then it says, Balaam got on his donkey and he left. Now, that seemed to be the end of the story until we come to the passages in the book of Peter and to the book of Jude. And here in Revelation, we learn of the heir of Balaam, we learn of the way of Balaam, and we learn here in the book of Revelation of the doctrine of Balaam. And what we discover is in the very next chapter, after Balaam leaves, King Balak gets these beautiful Moabite women to go down to the men in the valley, to these young Jewish men, and seduces them sexually. 
and says to these young men, hey, you want to have sex? They're like, whoa, you're beautiful. Yeah. Then come home with me. And as he brought them home, they said, hey, now when we have sex, we don't just have sex. It's a part of our worship to our God. Do you have a problem with that? No, I don't. Okay, so let's worship our God. Here's what we do. And then as an act of a worship to our God, then we can have sex. And that's what happened. And took them into immorality and took them into idolatry. And the anger of the Lord broke out and destroyed tens of thousands of the Jewish people. And what we discover here in the New Testament, that was Balaam's idea. Balaam evidently took Balak aside and said, hey, hey, don't get so mad at me. I couldn't curse him. God wouldn't allow it. I had to prophesy only what he, he gave me, which happened to all be blessings. But I happen to know about this God. He's a holy God. So manipulate it so the people become an unholy people and God will have to curse them. Why don't you take these beautiful women and, and, and Balaam's the one who gave Balak this perverted, diabolical plan. And then he also says here, in verse 15 of Revelation, he tells us there that you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. And we covered this earlier in chapter 2 when we looked at the church of Ephesus. The Nicolaitans means the rule over the people. In this particular case, in the church, it's where the leaders of the church are dominating, ruling the people. In other words, saying, you have to have me as a leader to be made right with God. You can't make it to God without me. You need to either have me pray for you or confess your sins to me, or I'm the one who has the answers that you must have to be made right with God. And that teaching, God hates He doesn't just, well, you know, live and let live. God despises it. He hates it with an incredible hatred. And we need to hate what God hates to the degree he hates it. There is one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ and him only. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that... uh, we are fellow sharers of your joy. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers of your joy. By faith you stand. So as leaders, yes, we do have an authority over your life, but only as it is true from God. So we as believers, the Bible says, submit one to another in the fear of God. As leaders of the church, we should have as much submission towards each other and towards everybody in the church as they have towards us. We all need to be submitted one to another. We need each other. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's a ear, one's a leg, one's an arm. We all together make up the body. I happen to be the pastor, so I'm the mouth, and we have a big mouth here. But that's just the way this body works out. (laughs) But in no way are my prayers elite. No way are my insights to the word at a greater level. We are all equal. And if it ever turns out that the leaders are above the people, that angers God. And the fact of the matter is, is we only have authority when we say accurately the things that God says. The thing, the church at Ephesus, he said... 
You guys hate the words of the Nicolaitans and those who come in and claim to be apostles, but you search them out and find whether they're true or false apostles. And when you find out they're false apostles, you expose them for what they are. And so what you had here in this church was you had this group of men who were dominating the people saying, listen to me. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. Listen to me. And they came up with this doctrine, which was okaying idolatry, which was okaying immorality. So evidently, the, the pastors of this church or some leaders in the church, some groups were saying, you know, when that time of the year comes and we have this big giant orgy here in town, as they did, you know, the big Mardi Gras week, it's okay if you have sex with some of the prostitutes that come out of the temples. And, you know, that week, what happens in Acropolis stays in Acropolis. And, you know, we'll come back, ask forgiveness, and we're going to be Christians, you know, the other 51 weeks of the year. But whatever you want to do, then do. I, I don't know. But somehow, they were okaying them to do things that God's word clearly did not okay them to do. And it was angering the Lord that they were saying that's okay. Today we have that in the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church says, guess what we figured out? Even though the Bible says plainly, homosexuality is an abomination to God. We, as the church and the hierarchy and the bishops tell you, not only is it not a sin, God's for it. Well, there's the doctrine of Balaam telling you that sexual immorality is okay. It tells us in Ephesians 4 that sexual immorality is idolatry. That when a person makes sex the most, one of the most important things, it becomes your God. I don't want my life to be defined by sex. Who are you? Well, number one, you need to know I'm a heterosexual. It's not even in my list. Because sex isn't even 0.01% of my life and who I am. But the fact that they want that to be the number one thing that defines them. Number one, you need to know I'm a homosexual. That right there is idolatry. It all sort of gets lumped into this doctrine of, of Balaam. Some people say, man, why are you... You're so upset about doctrine. Guys, if you don't have the truth, you have a lie. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. He also tells us, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there are also false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Do you understand that if you have a lie, you have destruction, even if it's a little bit of lie? If you're you fix your child's favorite plate of food, you know, whatever that is, a big plate of spaghetti. And somebody comes and drops on the edge of a plate. I mean, not even a drop full of Sinai. 
just a, a, a quarter of a drop of Sinai on the edge of the plate, would you give that plate of food to your child? There's no way. Even though the food itself is big and good, even a fraction of poison you would not put near your child. And I'm saying the same thing with teaching. Today we're flooded. The Bible tells us that in the last days we would be flooded with destructive heresies. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, In the last days, the Spirit expressly says, or emphatically says, that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of demons. Today we have these teachings. We have the teaching of evolution that says, God didn't make the place. It all evolved. Guys, it it, it goes against scientific laws. It goes against the first law of thermodynamics. It goes against the second law of thermodynamics. Mathematically, it cannot work out. Scientifically, it cannot work out. It is a theory, but yet it's taught as if it were a fact. It is a theory. And leading scientists today know it is a bad theory that cannot work out. But yet their only other choice is to believe God made the place. And they don't want to do that because they know if God made the place, then they're going to have to be submitted to God. So I'd rather teach a bad theory than to submit myself to God. But they have to come up with big bang theories and the monster theories. And, you know, it went from a billion years to, you know, 20 billion years because they know mathematically they have to try to manipulate the evolutionary cycle to try to make it make sense statistically, and within the the laws of probability, and it's still way outside that. They want you to believe today that the baby inside a woman's stomach is just a hunk of cells. And when you go get an abortion, it's like vacuuming your rug. You just suck something out and, you know, throw it in the trash. It's not even a, a, a real life. It's a lie. The Bible tells us that it's, he, we, we see the Lord calling people while they're in the womb, filling them with the Spirit while they're in the womb. That God has, the, the, in the, the Bible, the same word for the baby in the womb and the same word for a child outside the womb. It's a lie. And it's a destructive heresy. It's killing. In our country alone, 1.4 million babies a year. You calculate that over the last 30 years, we've done far more damage than Hitler ever did. We've incinerated far more people than Hitler ever did. But it's a teaching that people say, oh, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. That's a lie. It is a human being, and you just killed a human being. Today there's the teaching of homosexuality. People are born that way. It's a lie. Nobody's born that way, guys. That's who I am. I've got to be true to myself. It's a perversion. 30 years ago, everybody knew it. <laughs> okay? The guy who stood up and said, I was born a homosexual, and that's who I am. I've got to be true to myself. They're saying, you're just a pervert. Everybody would have said that. There wasn't anybody who had agreed with him. It's a perversion. They did it in secret because it was a shameful thing. It was a perverted thing. It still is a shameful thing. It still is a perverted thing. It's a sin. And the more of it you have in the society, the more of the society you destroy. When you undermine undermine the family, you undermine the community. When you do not have a community, you do not have a civilization. 
It's not only destructive physically to them. It's also destructive emotionally. And it destroys the family, which destroys the entire nation. I can't accept it. Because it is sin and it is wrong. And for me to encourage it or even to say it's no big deal. I would be a part of the lie that's bringing destruction upon people's lives. And even though you have the Episcopal priest saying, bless you and bless your homosexual lifestyle. God's not against it. God's for it. And I can't believe that there's anybody that even say it's a sin. God bless you. And so here's some guy who comes with his doctrine of Balaam before the Lord saying, well, hey, I didn't know, God, homosexuality is sin because my Episcopal priest said it was okay, so you can't judge me for it. God's going to say, I'm still judging you for it. Nobody is going to be able to give an excuse before God. I was taught that by my Nicolaitan leader, and therefore I'm clean. It's not going to work that way, guys. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, every one of us are to be workers in the word of God working at it to rightly divide every word of truth so we would not be ashamed. Every one of you are going to be held accountable to know from the very first verse of Genesis to the very last verse of Revelation. I'd get started if I were you. So you're not swayed by the winds and the waves of the various doctrines. And so there's going to be hundreds of thousands of false thoughts and teachings. And we've got to know the truth and know it well to cut through the jungle of minutiae, to be able to see the trail, the, the center line of that narrow road that leads to life. We've got to be prepared in advance. God said here, I have this against you. I am right now against you. That's a heavy thing. The Bible says God's against the proud in James. Now he's saying he's against those who have false doctrine who are holding to a teaching that's categorically opposed to the nature of our Lord, the nature of purity and the nature of a servant. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, repent. There it is. The Greek word repent simply means to have a change of mind, or it could also mean to turn around and go the opposite direction. I think the best picture of that is the prodigal son. I mean, in his mind, I do not want to live with this man called my father. (laughs) I don't want to live in his house. I don't even want to live in this stinking country. He takes his bag of money. He gets out of the house. He gets out of the country. And he goes and he lives in a foreign country. Well, when things go bad and he's in in the pig pen, he had a change of mind, didn't he? He said, you know what? I think things would be pretty good living with my dad. I want to live in his house. And I used to not want to be submitted to him, but I want to go back and ask if I could just be one of his lowly servants. I'm ready to be submitted to him. So he got on that road and turned around and went the opposite direction, which he had left earlier on. That's repentance. And when he came back, when he repented, when he had a change of mind, Dad, forgive me. Dad, I want to live with you. Dad, I want to be your servant. When he saw his son turn around and go in the opposite direction, his dad ran to him. God is for every one of you here, and that's the reason he's saying this. He's not just trying to give you bad news to say, sorry, sucker, that's the way life is. He's telling you the truth to set you free. 
And for some of you here today, the truth to you is heavy and negative because you have listened to the lies of Satan. You've bought into the thing. It doesn't matter if I dabble in pornography because I don't think God really cares if I'm looking at pornography. I've talked to pastors who have fallen into sin and, and, and say, how, you know, what, what is thinking? He goes, you know, I, I, would, I would look at pornography on the internet and I would go preach and I'd have the most anointed message I've ever had. I, would, I got into this adulterous affair and I led more people to the Lord than I ever did when I was walking with God, right? And so in my mind, I believe that God didn't care about my life because I, I'm so anointed. But think about Balaam. He was a true prophet of God and he prophesied the truth. Matter of fact, some of the most powerful prophecies we have of Jesus Christ come from the prophecy of Balaam. But what did Jesus say? Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did I not what? Prophesy in your name. Did the Lord argue with them? No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He did. Yeah, you did. But you also are a doer of iniquity. And we know in the book of Jude very clearly, very clearly, it says plainly that Balaam went to hell. Even though he talked to God, even though he heard from God, even though he prophesied the truth about the prophecies he gave, but he himself was never a man who was submitted unto the will of God. Many will do miracles in my name, cast out demons in my name, but they themselves aren't submitted to the will of God. And so where did Balaam end up? He ended up standing before the sword of the Lord as the angel was in front of him, ready to kill him. Where is the Lord in front of some of you today? He says, I'm coming to you with what? (laughs) The sword out of my mouth. It's not an angel this time, it's Jesus. And it's not a sword in the hands of an angel It's the sword coming right out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. And he's standing in front of some of you Balaam's here today. And he's saying one more step. It could be your head. And that's why he says, or else I come to you quickly. When he says I'm coming to you, usually that's a comforting thing. The Lord's coming. Oh, thank you, Lord. Not here. He said, I'm coming to you quickly because I'm coming for judgment. Here's a verse that everybody should have memorized in these last days. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. 1 Peter 4, verse 17 and 18 says this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 4, it's judgment on the world, guys. So judgment before it starts on the world has to begin with the church. And God is coming and he's separating the sheep from the goats. It tells us in 2 Thessalonians, before the coming of the Lord, there's going to be a great falling away. The Greek word is apostasia. Many going after these doctrines of demons. It says they won't listen to sound doctrine anymore, but they'll only seek out for teachers that'll tickle their ears. And they don't have an ability to listen to sound doctrine anymore. And God right now is telling some of you, before sin hardens your heart and you have no ability to hear anymore, that he right now, 
even though you've witnessed to somebody and led them to the Lord, even though you are doing these other good works and, and it's great, even in the day of Antipas in which he was martyred, you stood strong. You're not denying his name in some areas of your life. You've got some friends that are going off and doing drugs and you have nothing to do with it. And that's good. One of your friends went off and is living with his girlfriend and you re- you're not doing that. That's good. But he still has a few things against you. Because you've allowed this thing to become idolatry in your life. You've allowed these vices to take your, your life over and you've surrendered saying, I'm just going to be this way. This is the way I'm going to have to live. And, and I don't think God really cares. I don't feel convicted about it anymore. I don't think God cares. Well, the word of the Lord to you today is he's standing with a sword drawn and he is against you right now. And this is what he goes on to say. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For some of you, you've been in sin so long that it's a very faint voice because your heart is so hard and so numb. There's so many weeds that have grown up around the plant that you can't even see the plant anymore. It's shriveled up right from the very roots. But yet, through the hardness of your heart, through the numbness of your spirit, you can still hear, as faint as it may be, the voice of God telling you to repent. Listen. This may be your last opportunity. This may be the last time you'll ever hear that voice. This may be the last opportunity you get before you make that next choice that brings you in to destruction. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. To him who overcomes. He says that to each of the churches. You've got to endure to the end. Paul said, I fought the fight. I finished what? I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul didn't say, I fought the fight. I started 300 churches, led 500,000 people to the Lord, had 25 evangelistic campaigns, had three missionary journeys, wrote half of the New Testament. Paul didn't say that. He said, I'm at the end of my days, and I'm believing the truth, and I'm obedient to God. Woohoo! You know? Victory. You got to run the race to the end. Whoa, I've been a good Christian for 20 years. It's been just the last five. Guys, <laughs> you know, it was a good thing for those 20 years, but it won't make up for the last five. God's not going to look at the 50 years that you walked as a Christian and say, well, you know, 45, you know, out of the 50. It's not going to work that way. Doesn't matter how good the guy ran the first leg of the race. He has to finish and cross the line and be the first there. We've got to race to the end. To the church of Ephesus, he says, you guys got to overcome keeping the first love in your life. There's a lot of cares of this life. There's a lot of weeds Satan's planting around you. And, and Christ can become one of the top 10 things of your life. And you're going to lose that first love. You've got to keep Christ as a focus and keep that first love. To the church of Smyrna, he says, man, being a Christian has led you into martyrdom and to poverty and to hardship. Don't grow weary. Don't let your heart get bitter. Don't give up and say, man, I'm just tired of living the Christian life as all it brings is hardship upon me. The Lord said to them, you're right. Christianity on earth is not paying off for you, but it will in heaven. When you're in heaven for a billion years, the the most difficult of sufferings on this earth will not compare to the glories of come. Overcome. Even though you're being persecuted, overcome. And now he comes to the church of Pergamos. 
And he says, you must overcome these doctrines of demons. These lies, even though they're your spiritual leaders, they're lies. Even though they're telling you in the Bible, it's not. Even though they're okaying you to live in that life of sin, and they've blessed you to do so. It is sin before God, and I am judging it, and you've got to keep in the battle. Satan's no dummy. He's telling you, I'm okay, you're okay, be tolerant. It's all good. Don't worry, be happy. Set down your sword, set down your shield, take a little nap, be at peace. Well, we can't. Jesus said there's a peace of this world that we won't have. But there is a peace that God gives us that we'll never lose if we continue to live obedient to him. But we've got to fight the fight. And the word to the church of Pergamos, it's called the compromising church, is we must not compromise. And whatever ropes or chains Satan has got, let the sword of his mouth cut him off today. Whatever vines he has wrapped around the roots of who you are, underground where nobody sees, in the dark, damp places. Let the Lord bring the sword, pierce it right through the the dirt and kill those roots that are wrapped around you and be free that you can run that race with endurance. And he said, I'll give you the hidden manna to eat. I love that because in John chapter 6, verse 41, Jesus plainly says, I am the bread which came down from heaven. What is the hidden manna, guys? It's Jesus. And each of these rewards, it's Jesus. We get Jesus. And we get to eat of his fellowship. We get to eat of his richness. Now we see in part and we know in part. Now we look as if through a mirror dimly. But in that day we'll look upon him face to face and we shall not die. We shall live and see him in his totality and eat of that rich fellowship with him. And after a billion years, we have another trillion to go. There is no end. It'll be worth it all. Have you ever had that when you've been around somebody who's fruitful, who's in the word, who's living an obedient life? And even just a few minutes talking to them, it's so rich. It's where did you get that hidden manna? Oh, Jesus gave it to me as I spent time in the word. The Lord spoke that to me as I was meditating on the drive to work. That hidden manna of that fellowship. God wants to give you some hidden manna even now. He wants to speak into your heart things that eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor has even entered in the heart of man. There's a deep, rich fellowship that God has to those who want to go deep with him and be obedient to him. And then on top of that, not only do we have the deep, rich fellowship of that hidden manna to eat, but he says, I will give him a white stone And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So as we saw that picture of the white stone there in Pergamos standing today, God said, you know what? You may be the scum of the society of Pergamos as far as the world looks at you. Your brother's a part of that elite religion. Your uncle and your dad, they all go off to the temple as elders and the, as grand poobahs and the Zeus religion and they get all these special banquets and trips and you know they get all of this praise from these men and there's somebody's in town and here are you. All they say, man, you can join tomorrow and be one of the elite with us. And they know the special handshake and all the special words and you're left out. That's a hard thing to handle in this life. 
But Jesus said, if they rejected me, guess what? (laughs) They're going to reject you. Why? Because the world loves its own. And you are not of this world. Beware if all men speak well of you, Jesus said. Something's not right. There's not a separation between you and the world. But forget about the white stone and Pergamos. I got one up in heaven and I got your name on that. You're the elite of heaven. You're on the inside in heaven. The Bible says that the things that God's revealed are for us, but all the hidden things are of God's. He holds them alone. Well, in heaven, there'll be nothing hidden. Everything, all the, even the hidden things of God will be known to us on that day. You know, when I read this, I wonder if the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, where every person who receives the Lord, their name's in that book, I wonder if it's just the big white stone in heaven. And as you're cruising around heaven, you know, doing a little fishing, doing a little surfing, doing a little hunting, you know, whatever you like to do, <laughs> play a little tennis, cruising around heaven, there you can walk over to this big white stone. And there, hey, there's the date that I received the Lord, and there's my name. Ah, not the name that your parents gave you, but the name when he knitted you in your mother's womb, the name the Lord had for you. We see throughout the Bible, God letting people know, going, your name's Abram, but really it's Abraham. I know that everybody calls you Simon, but you're really Peter. Well, my parents named me Brian, but God knows what my real name is. I was born into this world, and my parents got to give me the name. But when I got born again, one day I'm going to be stepping into heaven, and I'm going to get my real name, the one that God, when he designed me, I'll have that name. And I'll know it, and I'll be able to look and say, there it is. My name is in that Lamb's book of life. For all of eternity, I'll be cruising around heaven with the Lord. You know, as we end here this morning, there's some of you that came who have that deep spiritual hunger for God. But it's been snubbed out by the things of the world. It's been snubbed out by sin and deception. For some of you, it is sex. For some of you, it is idolatry. For some of you, it is things that aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but it's possessing you. And you came here today because God wants to set you free. And you need to ask the Lord to come into your life and submit your life to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and let him write your name upon that white stone. Let him write your name in that book of life. Let him free you up now so you can run the race with endurance. There's some of you who came today and you are a believer, but you've been deceived by the doctrines of the demons. You haven't been walking in obedience. You've been hiding it, maybe from your husband or your wife or your family or your Christian friends. But God knows your works. He knows where you dwell. He knows what's really going on. It's better to reveal it now than God to reveal it on the day of judgment. It's better to come and confess your sin and be healed. And God right now is calling you to himself to say, you need to repent that times of refreshing may come. Let's all bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word right now. We do know that you are indeed with your two-edged sword piercing hearts right now, right down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. God is here calling you right now, but Satan is here right now trying to harden hearts too. And your own fleshly pride is trying to keep you 
from receiving all that God has for you. But God loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to come into him. And if you're here today saying, that's it, I want to give my life to Christ. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and to come forward and to stand here in the front. Jesus said, unless you're willing to proclaim me before men, I'm unwilling to proclaim you before my Father and before all the holy angels. There's some of you here today that you've been a Christian for a while. At least it looked that way on the outside. But you know you have not been walking in obedience. And God's calling you today to fall again upon that rock and be broken. To repent of your sins and and start afresh, start anew. Let today be the first day of the rest of your life. And to say, you know what? I don't care what my wife or my husband or my kids or my friends think. Or I see somebody across the way there in the auditorium from school. Or I see somebody from work. I don't care what anybody else thinks. The only thing I care about is what God thinks. And I want my life to be right with God. I want my sins forgiven. I want the guilt of my sin taken away. I want my life to be free to walk with Jesus. Then you need to come forward right now and make it right. Let's all stand up together. This is your opportunity. Make your way out right now and come. We're only going to give it a minute. Make your way right now and come. I'm coming to get my life right with the Lord today. I'm coming to receive Christ. God bless you. I believe there's many others right now. Thank you, Lord. Just get out. Don't care what anybody else thinks. Just come and stand right over here. Yes, there's many others. We're just going to give it just a minute. Come on forward. Stand right here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for touching his hearts. Don't let Satan rip you off. Don't let your pride rip you off. Come right now. Let's just sing one time through. This is your opportunity. I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for touching hearts, Lord. Come right on over here. There's others. I can sing of your love forever. Lord, you see these here that have made a clear statement that said, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I humble myself. And you said those who humble themselves, you can lift up. And I thank you for the power and the strengthening that's going to happen in their lives as they humble themselves before you. You said when one sheep is lost that All of heaven rejoices when it's found, and we thank you. And right now, just cry out to God in your heart. God, I'm a sinner. I know that you love me. I know you sent your son to die on the cross that I could be forgiven. Forgive me. Take the throne of my heart. Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my Savior. I surrender my whole self to you entirely to live an obedient life in the way you would have me to live. Come now, be my Lord. I give myself to you. And Lord, bless all those who have heard your word today in truth. Strengthen them greatly in the knowledge of you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. All right, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Hey, you guys came forward just one a minute just to encourage you. The rest of you, before you head out, meet somebody you don't know, get their name, and one thing you can pray for them throughout the week. God bless you all. Hope to see you back here tonight in the teaching of the book of Leviticus.